This morning's Bible reading comes from 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 12, to chapter 2, verse 17. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us, just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes us who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. I call on God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you, that you would share, that you would all share my joy. For I wrote, for I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to, to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of knowledge of him everywhere.
For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. It's a joy to be with you at this time of the year where we're coming close to Christmas and so many events and announcements about things to happen. Um, this is my second sermon this year and I started last time with Corinthians, Second Corinthians. Uh, and as I told you last time, uh, the, the Bible is a marvelous book. Every part of it is lovely. And one of the things in, in, in the letter, particularly this letter, it's, it's personal. Like Paul did not sit down and say, okay, it's time to give few theological lessons to the church. He does that sometimes. But this particular letter is highly personal. It reflects his deep thoughts as well as hurts, and in the midst of all that, great encouragement. Um, and as I shared with you, I found this letter to be quite encouraging for me over the years in life and in ministry. And I thought I'd share that with you when I started last time, to say we need to be encouraged by uh, seeing how God worked through Paul and with Paul to get him through uh, some of the most difficult experiences in his life in relationships with other believers. Uh, for this time, I thought I might do something for Christmas, so getting close to Christmas, but after a lot of thinking and prayer, I came back to say, no, I think we, we need to continue with the same idea as God is taking us as people and as church into another phase of our life, and uh, encouragement is needed all the time. But more than just encouragement to keep going, this particular talk actually is going to take us to another level. Not just surviving, but being victorious. And uh, while we struggle just to survive, actually Paul experienced more than just survival. And he's sharing that with us. And I am sharing it with you. Uh, some of this idea might be familiar to you, but it's a reminder. Uh, and I personally needed to be reminded all the time, especially when things are tough. Uh, I'm not sure about you, I, I forget quite quickly. And when I come back to the same ideas, ah, yeah, I forgot that, yeah, I needed that. So I hope today's talk will uh, be an encouragement for you as we leave another stage in our church life, as we move on even to another year of our life as individual families and churches. So that's my hope and prayer that God will keep us going, not just surviving, but victorious. So how, how about we come to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we pray, Lord, that you'll speak to us. Lord, all of us, first of them, your servant, need to listen to you and to be encouraged by you, by your teaching, by your spirit in our hearts. Lord, my prayer for all of us that will be listening, not just to a, a sermon or a talk from a person, but as a message from you to each one of us. 
We go through different situations. We are different people, deal with things in different ways, but your message is always valid and strong and giving life to all of us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, in contrast to the baby in a manger, helpless baby, we're going to look at another scene. This is a scene, uh, historical scene, of course, is done by artists about uh, a Roman parade, a victory parade for a victorious uh, captain or a leader, commander. And that's what I said, it's victorious life in spite of difficulties. Uh, we have talked about last time that Paul established the church in Corinth. Uh, background, most of the people were pagan. Uh, and uh, they came to Christ with a lot of baggage in their life, in their worship, in their relationships. So it wasn't an easy church for Paul by any measure. And he left them, after he left them, they started going in different directions. And one of the main problems was not their tendency to be unorganized, worship in different ways with pagan uh, baggage, but there seems to be some uh, Christians who are from Jewish background, he kept, they kept following Paul. Whenever he leaves a place, they get in, and they start telling or teaching uh, something that opposite or not exactly the same like what Paul says, Christ's gospel or his gospel. And their main point was, uh, they believed in Christ as the Messiah, but they cannot jump being Jewish, and everybody else has to go through obedience of the Jewish law before they can really get the full benefit of Christ, the Messiah. So they kind of taught the gospel Paul preached with the sufficiency of Christ by grace, no need to go through all obedience of the law of Moses to become a full Christian or even a real Christian. Uh, so to them, that was not acceptable. It was kind of insult to all what they believed all their life. And they hated this gospel, this teaching. And for them to be opposing this teaching, they did something very common, which is discredit the speaker, the messenger. So their attack was on Paul highly personal. And it appears sadly people in Corinth who came to Christ through the labor of Paul kind of started to discredit Paul as well. So they started to kind of believe uh, the things those teachers were promoting. Of course, Paul knew about that. And you can imagine if you have worked so hard in establishing something and you turn around and they not only go away from the teaching, but they actually start to attack you as a messenger, as a friend who worked with them for so long without even receiving any payment. Paul was deeply hurt. And in this letter, we can feel this hurt and this pain. He uses languages quite peculiar to this letter. So last time, we looked at the first part, and we saw that what kept Paul going, what kept him still ministering to them and trying to help them, was three things. Uh, he, he, saw, he saw that, he, he looked at who God is. Uh, 
And who God is, he's the father, their father, the father of Christ, and he is the source of every mercy and comfort we need. So when we look to God, we get that. Second, God allows trials and difficulties to work in our character, to make us better Christians. By that, we become more stronger, more persevering in difficulties, and more patient in waiting on the Lord, and more dependent on him to get us through. So God works to improve and work on our characters. The third point was, after he works in us and encourages us, teaches patience, endurance, and dependence on him, he uses us. So we become his hand, his tool, to help others who might be going through difficulties, the same lessons we have learned. Patience, endurance, dependence on God. So that's what we looked at the last time, and we said all these things, all this understanding in Paul's view of what's happening kept him going. Today we'll continue another level. But before we get to the victory parade of the Romans, which is actually the victory parade of Christ, Paul will talk about, there are a couple of points which are uh, important in the whole subject. First one I called clear conscience. In verse 12 he says, our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relationship with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on godly wisdom, but on God's grace. We don't talk much about conscience. But you'll be surprised to know that Paul uses uh, the concept of conscience quite a lot, actually 23 times. And we know that it's a kind of, a, not hot topic, but difficult one. Because most of us know that conscience is not God's law, but it's something God put in our hearts, in humans' hearts, everybody, to make us humans. It kind of tells us a sound or a voice in our head when something is right or wrong. When we do something wrong, we get this voice. It's not right. And that's not only for Christians, everyone. That's why the human race is continuing. It's not a jungle, although sometimes we act like a jungle as humans, but most of the time, human race functions and survives. And there are values most people will agree upon. And that's a work of what God is doing in humans by leaving what we call conscience. But I think as Christians, we are afraid from using it uh, extensively or a lot more than what we do because conscience as any part of our being is tainted by sin. So it's not pure. As such, it can be not reliable in telling us the truth. But nevertheless, Paul's is, Paul uses a lot, and it's not done in abstract. It's done with the understanding that as our conscience can be affected by other things other than God, the main reference is God's spirit and his truth as written in the scripture. 
So the conscience is a very strong tool in God's hand, but it has to be used under the control and supervision of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the Bible. I think that's why we rarely or hardly use it. But Paul used it a lot in a, in a, in a, in a, a special way. Here we have Paul. Uh, by the way, most commentators think there is another letter between the first letter and second letter. And in the second letter, in this missing letter, which we don't have, most probably it was a very hard, uh, harsh letter to the Corinthian, where Paul tried to explain several things, address several issues. And I think here it co he continues along the same line, but it seems to be something is missing, and I, I think that's justifiable. Uh, because we don't know what's happened in between. Nevertheless, Paul here comes to say, look, I have been attacked. I've been attacked on several uh, fronts. Many of them are personal. So one of them was, he's not an honest person. He is a, a manipulative person. He's a kind of a politician in our language, bad politician, not good politician. And he says something, but he means something else. And he used an example or situation where he said, I intend to come and visit you. Not twice, but twice. And he didn't. There is one event that we don't know why he canceled. But the second event, while he was going to Macedonia and coming back, going to Jerusalem, he canceled as well. And the false apostles, or the people who hated him, said, hey, this man is not reliable. You see, he says, I'm doing something, and he says, yes, I'm doing it, but actually he means no. He never intended to come. He is not a reliable person. He's not a trustworthy person. There is another event where Paul was not taking money, and because he wanted to attack him, he says, oh, he's not taking money because it's good, but he has an agenda. He's a, a crafty person. He has something in his mind that make him doesn't take money. Of course, of course, those false teachers or bad teachers were quite greedy and were keen to get financial benefit. Nevertheless, those attacks were against Paul. And Paul seemed to have tried to explain to them why he changed his plans or why his plans were changed. But when there is bad intention, and that's something very serious that happens with us, when we have an agenda or bad intention, it's unlikely any justification, any clarification will go very far. If somebody <coughs> is having a position against you, he doesn't like you or agree with you for any reason, it's unlikely that any explanation you give to them will go very far. So Paul here has nothing else to do except saying, look, you don't really fully accept what I'm saying. I am hoping that one day when everything will be revealed, you will fully understand us. Now, some of you may understand us partially, but there is time, going to be time when all the truth will be revealed when Jesus comes back and the truth will be known to everyone. And I'm looking forward to that, full you know, clarification of everything. But meanwhile, what, how can Paul continue? He says, I continue based on the testimony of my conscience. 
I know between me and God that I have been acting with integrity and godly sincerity. When I said yes, I mean yes. I didn't say yes, but I mean no. My gospel was what's taught by Jesus, and Jesus, everything in him is yes. Whatever he promises, whatever he says, he does. So Paul saying, I'm following his example, and that's how I behaved amongst you. One, one trick here, and I think we face that, and I kind of uh, get sensitive about it when it says, relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. I don't know how many of you experience trying to get your way, even if it's the right way, by God, by worldly ways. Worldly ways is kind of trying to achieve the goal, but not necessarily in a godly manner. How many times as a, as a minister, I'll be trying to please those who I think are more influential, who will support me more. That's a worldly way, because those influential people may not be the most godly people in the congregation. They may not be the best people to do a particular job. But I kind of give it to them because I want their vote. I want their support. I think that's an ungodly way. It's a worldly way. It's kind of lobbying even for a good reason, but in ungodly way. Paul saying, no, we have none of that. We are behaving in integrity and godly sincerity and using godly ways. The means do not justify the end, even in serving God. Paul uses the same idea in another, in Acts, he says, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. It's an extra element here. Not just I'm trying to examine my motives all the time in God's presence by prayer, by going to the scripture and asking godly people. He says, I keep my actions clear to the people. So conscience here is not just abstract, it's not internal. It shows itself by actions. And Paul is able to say in different parts that some of you have seen how we have been sincere with you. So it's not totally in the heart, it's actually expressed in action. That's why it says clear before God and man. We may be misunderstood at times, but nevertheless, there will be some who may understand. And those who misunderstood us may come to realization after seeing our actions over time that we were right and they were wrong. And what makes us clear, you know, um, confident we are relying on God is set his seal on, on, of ownership on us and put his spirit in our house as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So really, when we have reference to conscience and we can use the conscience to support us in our walk with God, even people misunderstand us, is his confidence is God is working with him and in him, and we cannot separate that from the work of the scripture because the Holy Spirit is the author of the scripture and the one who explained it to us. So our actions are 
under the umbrella of the Holy Spirit and Scripture. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it. Strong words, huh? You expect somebody coming to say, I stake my life on this. Well, he must be very confident. What it was in order to, sp to spare you that I did not return to Corinth, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith we stand firm. So it's not something he sees and evidence, but he has faith that he will do the right thing. And by that, he's helping them. Again, he's explaining why he didn't go to them. He said, if I come to you, it will be a time of clash, conflict, you will be upset, and I will be upset. And the interesting part, Paul is saying, I wanted to save you the pain. He's worried about them. He's working for their interest, not his own interest. So his conscience is not his support to feel good about himself, but for him to continue doing the right thing, even with opposition, even with misunderstanding, because ultimately that's for their own good. That's his primary motive. Not self-vindication, but really doing what's best for them. A lot of things to, to digest in this concept. How did he kept going? Another concept he teaches here is compassionate and loving heart. When people misunderstand us, when people mistreat us and say all different things about us, we are likely to be disappointed, and a lot of times rightly so, but sometimes can be mixed with bitterness, with hatred. And that makes things worse. It's a kind of worldly human reaction. But Paul has an amazing heart. My prayer all the time when I come to this section says, God give me this heart that Paul had. In spite of all what they have done to him, and that's highly personal, and of course to his message, so he was jealous again about the gospel of Christ, but a lot of the attacks was quite personal. In spite of all that, he still did not write him off. He said they're you know, useless. I tried my work in this church, it didn't work, so let them have the false teachers and I'm out of it. He hasn't done that. He still wants to gain them for Christ. Because he saw what's at stake here is the gospel of Christ. And he's being used to discredit the gospel of Christ. So he was able to gain strength from God to continue to love them and be compassionate to them and trying to save them from the direction they have been going through. Lots of things... Uh, we can talk about this area. I, uh, you know, I was sitting there with you or some of you in the time with John Irving when he sat with the congregation. I, I could feel the sense of pain, misunderstanding, disappointment, quite prevalent. 
and rightly so. But one of the things we can get from Paul in this passage is a compassionate, loving heart. That will cross the barriers. That will help healing a lot of things that may not happen in the way we like. And that what helped Paul. And that's what I pray for us as congregation, as families, and for myself as a person as well. Paul has a compassionate and loving heart. Lots of that I can say, but for the time, uh, I just uh, read one part. For I wrote, you, uh, I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depths of my love for you. So in his strong words, it's not driven by personal attack, counter-attack. It's driven by he cares for them. And his words, depth of my love for you. And that reminds us with the passage in Ephesians. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect, respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. So Paul's strong words were a reflection of deep love. It's kind of paradox here. You know, how can strong words, a bit harsh, be for love? But every parent knows that. They can be firm out of love, giving everything or saying something that's not totally true is not love, is not love. Uh, Paul also was hurt by a situation where there is an adulterous man and he, you know, gave some strong sentence how to deal with him. And this man kind of came back to God. He repented and he wants to come back. And Paul says here the same thing. You find the same theme, same language in accepting this man again. He says, now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to, to reaffirm your love for him. So you see, it's, it's more than just about him. It's his language. It's his heart. How I love that God gives me a heart like Paul. So I can use the language of love in every situation, whether it's personal, whether it's in church, or even about somebody who did something really awful. Love is what is common in all of this uh, situation. And of course, we can't uh, pass this verse, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. We can say a lot about the heart, the forgiving and loving heart, but in this context, this is one of the things after the clear conscience that kept Paul going. His love for them kept him serving them, kept him trying to get them out of the situation of the false teachers. He was loving and compassionate. Again, if we are learning this heart to be loving and compassionate, that will help us go through pain, disappointment, frustration from people. It can be situation, but the most of the hurt we suffer from are relational. They can be triggered by events, but the hurtful part is usually relational. 
And the biggest deal, biggest treatment for dealing with this hurt from people is a compassionate, loving heart. It's a great gift from God. We need it to keep going. The last one is a conquering faith. And uh, this kind of the climbing is what I have to say, but uh, we're getting close in time, so I'll try to be brief, but I think th this is the climax. This is a central piece of teaching in the whole epistle, uh, because it goes to a height that's amazing height. Okay. Uh, and I, I read the part here again and just try to focus on what Paul is saying. But thanks be to God. By the way, he was just talking a few verses before. He went to Troas, to willing to go to Corinth, and he didn't uh, find uh, his, this, uh, you know, one of the people to, that supposed to have come from Corinth to tell him good news. So he was unhappy. He, wa he didn't feel peace. He felt things are going bad to worse in Corinth. So he couldn't go back to them, and he canceled the trip and went to Macedonia. <coughs> That's very low point. He was in anguish and tears. And then all of a sudden, in verse 14, we are all shocked, and the readers were shocked. Everybody's shocked to get this scene in verse 14. Like, totally without preamble, he jumped from low point to the high, high, high point. And that's what he says in verse 14. But, so instead of all that, thank be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are, not, are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death to the other, an aroma that brings life. And who's equal to, to such task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. <clears throat> what he's talking about here is um, a Roman parade. This is history, it's not in the Bible. But we know that when a commander uh, has a big victory, uh, they say kills at least 5,000 of the enemies, and he captures maybe the other king or ruler and his family or his generals, as well as he uh, gains a lot of spoils, treasures. And he brings them back to Rome. And they enter Rome in a magnificent parade, welcoming parade to celebrate this victory. They say he used to be uh, riding a horse, a, a chariot, golden chariot, uh, followed <coughs> by his generals, sons, his family, and then the spoils, and this is another drawing, shows a lot of spoils, animals, and things on carriages uh, in this long parade. And then he goes to Rome, to a particular temple, and it is kind of semi-religious. 
celebrating the victory because of their gods. That's why they go to the temple to kind of conclude the, the parade. There will be um, priests burning incense. So the whole parade will kind of be engulfed by the smell of this incense. So this is a history of what used to happen in Rome. Now Paul knows this imagery or this scene is known to the people. But the way he uses it is quite different. Like he picks and chooses different elements of the parade and uses it in a different way. So the way Paul describes what happened in, in, in the book is different than what happened in history. But he picks up elements that are vivid in people's minds. So what he's saying here, God is leading us in a parade, victory parade. And who's the commander? Who's the victorious one? Christ. Christ is the commander who's victorious. And we, his family, his sons and daughter, he uses the word were captives. So again, that's not very literal usage of the metaphor. And if anything, Paul is using this kind of contradiction or paradox again. We are victorious in Christ, with Christ, but he's happy to call himself captive. In the parade, the captives are the enemy. And Paul, by using this, is saying, and that's the theme Paul used a lot, God is calling us sons and daughters, and we call ourselves slaves. He gives us strength, but we see ourselves weak. So this kind of strength in weakness is very strong in Paul's mind. We are not the one who are being paraded or parading ourselves. Christ is the one. And he calls us his sons, his family. But Paul's saying, no, we are really your captives. It's an honor for us to be your slave, your servant. And in that is our biggest glory, to be part of your victory parade. The captives here, the real captives in the parade, are the enemies. So Paul again uses another scene of the aroma. And he says, in the parade, there is a strong smell. For the generals and the family of the captain, they smell this aroma and feel happy. They are going to be celebrated in the temple. But for the unfortunate captives, they know they are getting closer to execution. This smell represents the last stages before they meet their fate. So to them, this smell is something really fearful. So Paul is saying, again, who's, who is the incense here? He says, we are the incense. So at some time he says, we are the captive. But here again, he says, we are the aroma. We are the incense. And he says, we are to God pleasing aroma of Christ. So again, we use the, the image of the sacrifice 
When the Bible says God smells the sacrifice and be pleased, he is pleased here with us. He's mixing the images to get the point. We are God's aroma. Our life and teaching, which Paul was teaching, is really something God is pleased with. And he smells it and he's pleased with it. But on the other hand, we are God's smell or aroma to the world. What happened in the world? There will be some people who will be rejoicing to smell this smell of our life and ministry. They are happy to receive that as a gift of life. But sadly, there will be some that our life and ministry and message will be actually reason for their judgment because they will reject Christ. And that those two facts are facts. And Paul is saying, we are not trying to peddle the gospel because the gospel is using us as an aroma for life and death, sadly. That's not God's intention. That's not his desire. But sadly, some people will reject our message or our lives or our testimony. They are not rejecting us. They are rejecting Christ. And that will lead to judgment. As sad as it is, it's a fact of our Christian life. And Paul is saying we are not like those apostles who peddle the gospel to make it friendly to all. Nobody will have offense in the Bible. Everybody will like it. He says, no. The sad reality is God's truth will separate depending on whether we accept his invitation for life or we reject it. If we reject his invitation to life, we are actually bringing judgment on ourselves. And Paul's saying, so we have to be honest. We don't have to water down the gospel. We don't have to be people-pleasing. We do what's right, because he says, we are in sincerity as those sent from God. God sent us to be his aroma to the whole world. Now, Paul is saying that, say, look, we are victorious. He says that, who always leads us in Christ triumphant procession. When? Not when we die. Not when things are good. We are always victorious in Christ's procession. Not because we win, but because he does. In spite of all the attacks, rejection of his gospel, he says, look, I am working for God. I am actually part of his victorious parade. My friends, do you feel that the coming year will be, you'll be living in a victorious parade? Do you, live, do you feel like right now you are not defeated, but you are part of victorious parade with Jesus being the victorious captain? Well, Paul is saying, this kept me going. I'm not looking at the failures. I'm not looking at the rejection. I'm not looking at the attack. I'm not looking even at some who decided to go the other way. I am looking to the captain, the commander, Jesus. And that keeps me going. So I trust this will keep you going in the coming stage of your life, church life, in your family, in your personal life. Keep going. See, believe, and follow the victorious commander, Jesus Christ.
Amen.